There are some moments in life that you don't need to work to remember. They're ingrained in your mind in a way that's unforgettable, even as other things fade. Could be something momentous like a, a graduation or a, a wedding or birth of a child. Could be something sad like a funeral of a loved one. But some memories stick with you not because the, the event is so momentous, but because your thinking changed, because of some new awareness that you didn't previously have. I was 20 years old, and it was summertime. I was an employee of the McDonald's Corporation, working in a resort town on the east coast of the United States of America, Ocean City, New Jersey, a place where people stream for vacation in the summertime. And young people like myself were needed there to do things like put 12 frozen patties on a grill and then flip them every 45 seconds. My shifts were 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. I would finish my shift, go back to the place I was staying, and then either take a nap for the afternoon, or as I did on this particular day, look for uh, some place to read quietly in the shade. On this particular day, I walked a few blocks over to the local high school, half a block from the ocean. You you could see the, the water stretching off to the horizon. Next to the school building, there was a football pitch and a track around it. There was a a chain link fence, picnic table, and an oak tree. And I sat there under the tree with my Bible. I had just become a believer a couple of months earlier through the witness of a, a college friend. I think I had a journal and a pen on the table there to write down my thoughts. Uh, I sat there, and I can remember it, it's 30 years ago now, but it's clear in my mind as if it's right here, looking at the tree, the grass, and the sky, and I was suddenly aware of a a single point of reality. It was as if my thoughts just focused in on one idea. I'm not alone. Now, there was nobody there, but the thought came, God is here. He's looking at me. I'm thinking about him. He's thinking about me. It's really hard for me to explain to you, what, but I just sat there, and I didn't do anything. I didn't want to say anything. I, I, I didn't want to move. And I sat there for a really long time. I don't think I'm over-exaggerating to say that I was never the same. It was as if all the things that I'd been hearing about God, things that I'd learned about him, suddenly became real, became experiential in a way that was unforgettable. Now, I want to be careful because experience is, is only a reliable guide as it's interpreted by God's word. I wouldn't have known how to explain or understand what had happened to me sitting under that tree in the summer of 1993 if I hadn't been reading the Bible. 
And, and I don't want to say to you that my religious experience has to be your religious experience. But on the other hand, we want to be really clear that the God who is there is not an idea, not a concept. He's a person who can be known. In, in fact, who has made himself known. He is a God who's in the business of revealing himself to people. He wants us to know him and to know him rightly. We're here this morning because of that fact that he's revealed himself to us. He wants us to know him and he wants us to serve him. The text that we're going to look at this morning, it's a crucial one in the book of Isaiah. After his introductory five chapters that, that tell us how bad things are getting in Israel, Isaiah wants us to know how he became a prophet in the first place. And I'm persuaded that he's, he's done this rather unusual thing of not placing his calling narrative right at the beginning of the book. Because he wants us to see how bad things have gotten in Israel and say, what can be done about this? Though Israel as a whole may be heading for exile, individual Israelites can still find their way back to God. How can they do that? In the midst of a wicked and depraved generation, how could they return to knowing and serving God? That's what our text is going to teach us about this morning. Uh, if you want to write down a main idea, it would be useful for you to do that so you can talk about it later. As you gather with family and friends, the main idea of our text is this. Knowing God rightly leads to serving God faithfully. Knowing God rightly leads to serving God faithfully. It's my prayer that our time together in God's word will help all of us to know and serve this God who is there. So let's dive into Isaiah chapter 6. It's on page 534 of the Pew Bible. If you want to grab one of those and, and feel free, as always, to take one of those home with you. We would love to, to give you a copy of God's Word if you don't have one as a gift to you. Page 534, Isaiah chapter 6. Point one, knowing God rightly will be the first seven verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, 
behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. All right, we'll stop there. This first section breaks down into Isaiah's vision of God in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 is Isaiah's response where he pronounces woe on himself. And then in verse 6 and 7, God's gracious act of atonement. Uh, Let's observe a few things as we come to the text. First, Isaiah gives us an important time stamp right at the start. This vision happened in the year King Uzziah died. This is the 8th century B.C. Uzziah was basically a good king. At least he sought the Lord and received blessing for it early in his reign, but he didn't finish well. Towards the end of his life, because of his great strength, he grew proud, and God actually judged him by by giving him leprosy, which he would have until his death. It would be a great quiet time for you to have this afternoon or sometime this week. Just go to 2 Chronicles 26 and read and think about the danger of spiritual pride. But politically, his death meant that the looming Assyrian threat we talked about last week is even more dangerous. The king is dead. What's going to happen? Isaiah is in the temple, and he sees this amazing vision. Look at all the detail that we get. The the Lord is sitting on a throne. He's high and lifted up. The, The train of his robe, a better translation of that, is the hem of his robe, the very bottom of his robe, The idea, if you can picture Grand Solomon's temple, uh, the the ceiling must have become translucent, transparent to Isaiah. But the the very bottom of the Lord's robe fills the temple. So the the throne must be stretching up from earth to heaven. And the Lord is seated upon it. There's no doubt what this means. The king is not dead. Right? Uzziah may be dead, but the the true king is not dead. Earthly rulers and monarchs are not like this. Like a true king, he's got attendants around him. When it says, above him stood the seraphim, he is seated. They're hovering on the same plane as him. They're actually flying. Now, we don't know exactly what what seraphim are. They're, They're some kind of angelic beings. The, the, the root word in, in Hebrew is the same root word as, as snakes. So some have proposed serpentine creatures uh, of some kind. Uh, and there's a, a cognate in Hebrew that sounds like the word fiery. So, so some commentators will say these are like fiery snakes. I, I don't know exactly. What's clear is that the imagery of the wings of these angels powerfully communicates that that even these perfect angels are not able to look at the majesty of the Lord. They have to shield their eyes, shield their face from his glory. And they cover their feet. It's reminiscent of Moses being told, you remember on when he encounters the Lord at the burning bush, he has to take off his sandals for he's on holy ground in the presence of Yahweh. This king is too holy. Too glorious, even for angels. And these attendants have a job. They're calling to one another an antiphonal song. 
I wonder if you've ever done an antiphonal reading or singing. We, we could do that where this half of the congregation would, would sing something and then this half would sing it back. That, that's the idea here. These, these angels are, are singing to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. That's what hosts means. It means armies. It refers to the angelic armies of the Lord, that the legion and myriad angels who do his bidding. And they're also saying that the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, now what does this word holy mean? You know, it's never fully defined in Scripture, in part because holy is by definition what God is. He is transcendent and distinct from his creation. And his transcendence and distinctness and separateness is described by holiness. So when you're looking at a a sunset or you're looking at a newborn baby, you're not looking at God. Other religions may say that. But Christians understand that God is distinct from all that he has made. In addition to transcendence in the Old Testament, holiness is often connected with God's attitude toward ethical behavior. God's law draws the parameters of his holiness, of what it means to be God. So Israel is supposed to be a holy nation because they keep God's law. Be holy, for I am holy. He does what is right. He does what is good. He does what is pure. And in that sense, all of his attributes are holy attributes. His love is holy. His wrath is holy. His wisdom is holy. Maybe that's why this is the only thrice-repeated attribute in Scripture. We don't read that he is love, love, or wrath, wrath. He is holy, 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 three times. But these angels don't just tell us that he's holy. They model for us the right response to God's holiness. They don't look directly at the Creator. That would be too overwhelming. They cover themselves in humility, but at the same time, they sing his praises. The vision here finishes with an earthquake, smoke, both typical of theophanies, appearances of God to humans. You know, one of the things that you often hear people say is that they would believe in God if he revealed himself to them in some sort of a miraculous way. If they could see a vision like this one, they'd believe. And maybe we could feel the same as we come to a text like this. I mean, Isaiah saw the Lord in a way that you and I haven't. But friends, realize that while God is not under compulsion to reveal himself in a certain way to anyone, the history of redemption is a history of God's gracious self-revelation. He delights to do this, to reveal himself. That's what the Old Testament prophets were all about. They received revelation from God and delivered it to the people. And that supremely is what the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is about. Jesus was God in the flesh so that people could see who God is, to see what he's like. The preaching of the apostles and the writing of the New Testament was about helping people see the Lord. You and I can't demand 
God reveal himself to us. But we can take a lesson from Isaiah here in his pursuit of God. Did you notice that this revelation happens while he was in the temple? In this time of great political and I assume personal instability. Isaiah has set himself to seek God. To want to know him. You and I put ourselves in the same kind of position to to know God when we pursue him. The fellowship of his people. By opening his inspired word. Sitting under the teaching of it. You know, your spiritual life can only progress to the level that you understand who God is. Is that why you're here this morning? Would you describe yourself as someone who's seeking to know God? So that's the vision. Let's look now at the effect. There is an immediate and spontaneous effect on Isaiah here. We see it in verse 5. He says, woe is me. Woe is a pronouncing of doom. The older translations say, I am undone. He feels like he's coming apart at the seams. It's a shattering vision for him. Why would that be? Well, this vision of God somehow shines a spotlight on all the uncomfortable places in him. This glorious vision of God produces horror as he turns to look at himself. Look at what he says there. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew people always assumed that to see God was to die. You may remember Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in, in the book of Genesis. When he realizes who it was, he is, he is just astonished that he's still living. Or you may remember, as we read through Exodus last year, the the appearance of God in Exodus 19. The people rise up and they say to Moses, no more. You talk to God. We we don't want to talk to him face to face anymore. We're going to die. We even see this effect in the New Testament. Remember in the miraculous catch of fish when Peter is in the, the boat with Jesus, the other disciples, and Jesus tells them to throw the net on the other side, and so they do it, and then it's filled with fish. And, and you, can almost, you can almost picture it as, as Peter goes from looking at these fish to turning to Jesus, and, and he doesn't say, this is so great. Let's do this three times a week. This is going to be great for business. That's not his response. He, he turns, and he, you can see the wheels working in his mind. He realizes that, that Jesus standing there is actually God. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He's terrified. Go away from me. The unholy is repelled by the presence of the holy. That's what's happening to Isaiah here. It's exactly how you or I would feel. Except something happens. One of the angels has taken a, a burning coal. I assume from the altar, the burnt offerings there in the temple, puts it on the lips of Isaiah. Now, why the lips? And why would Isaiah say he's a man of unclean lips? Why wouldn't he just say, I'm a man of unclean heart? Some have proposed that it's because of Isaiah's call to be a prophet, to speak for God, that he feels like his lips is unclean. But I, 
I don't think that works because he says he lives among a people of unclean lips. They were not all called to be prophets. I think more to the point is Jesus' teaching that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words are the external expression of our hearts. And thus the first place that Isaiah locates his sin. He thinks about, thinks about the words he said that are untrue, unkind, unholy words, unworshipful words. Like the person who realizes that their chat history can't be deleted. That all those social media posts are still there, except it's his whole life laid bare before the omniscient and the holy. He's unclean. He's unworthy. He can't stand. But God says, Isaiah, your lips are unclean. Well, well, now I will cauterize them with burning fire. I will refine you with the fire of judgment from my holy altar, where the blood of a sacrifice has been shed. That's where the coal came from. The angel then says, this has touched your lips, Guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That, that word atone is a precious word, beloved. It means to cover, to, to do away with, to render moot. And Isaiah is telling us that this burning revelation changed everything for him. It should be the burning revelation that changes everything for us. Every one of us. If, if we are to know God, have to pass through this same channel of seeing God for who he is and then seeing ourselves rightly in light of that. You know, the, the person who's, who's clinging to this idea that, that they're better than most of the people around them and so that's, that's going to be a passing grade with God is living a fiction. Beloved, don't, don't live that way. One glimpse of the holiness of God should just Banish that thought from your mind. There is no way by having your good deeds somehow outweigh your bad deeds that you're going to be able to stand before a holy God. It's not going to happen. You and I have to come to the end of ourselves if the work of Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin is going to make any sense to us. And, you know, we, we live in an age where psychological therapy and discussions of mental health have taken center stage. You may have noticed that the, the common discussion point in trying to understand what's wrong with us as human beings is usually very different than what we find here. So if you do much reading on the web or in popular books, the discussion often surrounds self-esteem. How do we have better self-esteem? This is, this is what WebMD recommends if you find yourself having self-esteem issues. It says adjust your mindset. You've been able to identify the times where you felt a blow to your self-esteem. You've become self-aware about how and why you have the thoughts and feelings towards those events. Now you can take a step back and analyze those thoughts and emotions. You now have the power to change your thought patterns, to raise your self-esteem. Remember to think and feel hopeful statements. Focus on the positive aspects of all situations. And, and don't be afraid to relabel 
upsetting thoughts. Most importantly, don't hesitate to forgive yourself. No one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. Doesn't make you a bad person. Just makes you human. I wonder what you think of that in light of what we just read. You, you can see the strategy to deal with what's wrong inside of us, what we've done wrong, what we've said that's wrong, what we feel that's wrong. You try to relabel it. You know, I, I'm a greedy, anxious person. No, no, no. It's good money management. I, I've been unkind to Uncle Tony, but I'm pretty nice to Aunt Doris. You can try this strategy of forgiving yourself. But friends, the scriptures tell us that this is all a dead end. It's, it's trying to put more gauze on a wound that's not stitched up. You can't relabel what is wrong. You can't get rid of it by not thinking about it. And you can't forgive yourself when you're not the offended party. God is. Beloved, God offers the better solution here, the true solution. It's atonement. God is more holy than you have ever dared realize. You are more sinful than you've ever dared face. But in Christ, you're more loved than you ever dared believe. What if you found your worth? Not in a relabeled fiction or a hopeless comparison with others or a, a, a myopic focus on the positive, but instead on the atoning love of God. Two wonders here that we confess. Our worth and our unworthiness. Our value fixed, our ransom paid at the cross. John Bunyan pictures this beautifully in Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Christian is carrying this massive burden on his back throughout the whole first part of the book. You realize it's the burden of his sin and his guilt, his woe. And then you read, Christian ran till he came to a hill. Upon it stood a cross, and a little below was a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders, fell off his back, began to tumble, and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. So I wonder as we conclude this first point and think about application, do you see yourself rightly in the light of the holiness of God? Sometimes we're afraid to say we're wrong and undone, when in reality, that's what will bring us healing because it's the precursor to understanding the atoning grace of God. You know, you should surround yourself with counselors who will tell you that. That's the kind of counselor you need, whether someone in the congregation or perhaps one of the elders. Knowing God through atonement is knowing him rightly. This leads us to the second thing we need to do. Let's consider, secondly, serving God faithfully. Read verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, 
but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. All right, for the first time, God speaks in our passage. Uh, and there's something quite unique to the calling of Isaiah as a prophet here. God, God asks who will go rather than tells him to go. And all the other prophetic calls I could find, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, God just tells them to go, calls them to go. Some suggest that Isaiah is different because of just how difficult his ministry is going to be. The us there in verse 8, who will go for us? It may be a hint at the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three distinct persons is largely a New Testament revelation. We get hints of it in the Old Testament, like in Genesis 1 where he says, let us make man in our image. God is asking who will be his ambassador, who will go as a spokesperson for him. And Isaiah doesn't need any time to consider, does he? You know, the person who's seen God's holiness and his sinfulness and has been redeemed by grace doesn't need any convincing, doesn't need any coercion. They're ready to volunteer for whatever God asks, whatever God wants. I think we should let that question rest on us. Who will go for us? You know, if you struggle with the idea of serving God, if it feels like a great burden to you, consider going back and just studying the character of God and the nature of the atonement. Maybe pick up a book like R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God or Knowing God by J.I. Packer, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Maybe meet up with a friend and read through a book like that, just purposefully so you can stare at the character of God. Think about how amazing it is that he would save us. We should have a ready, send me, I'll go. Delight to answer the call of one who's loved me so much. But verse 9, I don't imagine, is what Isaiah was expecting we get the content there of what Isaiah is supposed to go preach, what he's supposed to go tell the people. Keep hearing, but do not understand. Keep seeing, but do not perceive. Now, this is obviously not the sum total of what Isaiah is going to preach. We've got 60-some chapters of Isaiah to go, and that is probably a fraction of all of his preaching to the people. But I take this as a summary of his message. He's to tell Israel that in the midst of their idolatry and and they're hoarding and hedonism and replacing God, despising his word, they're no longer going to be able to understand or perceive the spiritual truth that he and the other prophets bring. 
Verse 10 there is the result. His preaching will make their hearts more dull, their ears more heavy, their eyes more blind, so they will not turn and be healed. In other words, his preaching is not going to bring about an awakening of the people, but rather a hardening of the people. I think in verse 11 there, we're seeing the the heart of the prophet when he says, How long, O Lord? And the words are not encouraging. Until the land is an uninhabited waste, people taken away. Speaking of the exile to come in verses 11 and 12. And then verse 13 closes with this image of a tree that has been cut down and there's only a stump left. So what does all this mean? We've thought about things so far from the perspective of Isaiah. We should also think about it from the perspective of what it teaches about God. You know, most times Isaiah 6 is read, we stop at verse 8. That's where the scripture reading stops. I've heard many a a missionary commissioning ceremony use this passage. We don't use verse 9 and 10. Let's not discourage them before we send them out, okay? But it's really important for us to understand what's being taught here. Why tell Isaiah that his ministry is going to be largely unfruitful? You know that of the more than 80 times that Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament, verses 9 and 10 by far are the most quoted. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans all quote these verses. They're very important. What's going on? We described last week the the place that Israel had reached. We looked at the six woes, hoarding wealth, hedonism, self-indulgence, mocking the idea of judgment, redefining right and wrong, and ultimately an enthronement of self. For many years, Israel has heard prophetic warnings. There have been temporary reprieves, judgment delayed, but none of that worked to bring them back to repentance. God has now decided that what is needed is the complete rock-bottom cleansing that only exile can bring. That means for us, we should understand, with God there is a point of no return. A A series of decisions to ignore him, to harden yourself to his word. You can reach a point where you no longer have the ability to hear. Jesus quotes this in Mark 4 to explain how the disciples who have decided to follow him can understand the parables he's teaching. The crowds who are uncommitted, they cannot. Luke quotes it at the end of Acts to explain how the Jewish leaders in Rome refuse to respond to Paul's preaching, but the Gentiles do. Paul himself quotes it in Romans 11 again to explain the same thing. In every case, it's not that the people didn't have a chance to hear and respond at some point, but rather that after having heard and refused to respond, God gives them over to a hardness of heart and a tragic end. I wonder if you've thought recently about how serious a thing it is to listen to the Word of God, whether it's read or whether it's 
preached, you are always either letting it shape you or hardening yourself against it. If you harden yourself today, you know, maybe the preacher's talking about not making money an idol and, and using it ethically and compassionately for the needs of others. And, and you have this area, you know what it is, but, but you're not ready to deal with it. And so you say, yeah, it's, it's, I'm just going to keep that over here. Or maybe you're in a, a relationship that you know is unholy, behaving in a way that you know is not right. But, but again, you tell yourself, look, I've got all these other areas that are going fine. Don't, don't, don't touch this one. So you just, you just kind of tune out, all right? Ch- check your WhatsApp. A few minutes go by, and then you can head off on your day. But, but how do you know? whether this is the last chance you have where you can even hear. Maybe the next time that's preached about, the wall comes down just a little bit faster and a little bit harder. Maybe you're no longer able to respond. Beloved, it's a a serious thing to hear the word of God. Don't harden yourself to the words of eternal life. So these are sobering words, but, but I want you to notice that God does not leave them without a glimmer of hope. That, that last sentence gives a, a ray of light amidst the darkness of impending judgment. The, the tree that's pictured in verse 13, cut down to the stump, we're told that the holy seed is its stump. Now what does that mean? Saying that the stump is actually a seed points to the possibility that it's going to grow again. The fact that it's holy points to the fact that there is a remnant of true believers. Isaiah should take heart in his ministry that though Israel by and large will not respond, individuals will hear his message. They'll believe it. Now let's put the pieces of the chapter together. We've said that Isaiah wants us to see his own call as a prophet, as a model for us. A model of discipleship, really. He's telling us that knowing God rightly leads to serving him faithfully. That that all of us have to go through this process. Seeing God in his holiness and majesty. Despairing of our own utter inability to do anything except pronounce doom on ourselves. But then receiving from his hand atonement. We then rise to the question of who will go and say, here, send me. I'll serve you. Then comes the persevering through all the hardship that faithfulness to God requires, even when things don't turn out like we like. Now, I think it's natural for us to ask, how did all of this play out in Isaiah's life? Did knowing God rightly lead to serving God faithfully? Did it give him staying power in a life of faithful service to the Lord. Well, Isaiah's life was not easy. Uh, He was married, had two kids that we'll read about in the next couple chapters. His ministry didn't make him very popular, as we well can imagine, from the content of what he had to preach about exile. He had to watch Israel decline spiritually, through more than six decades of preaching. Can you imagine? He, he watched the northern kingdoms fall in 722. I, I don't know when he died exactly, but they were heading towards exile in the 
southern kingdom of Judah in 586. Eventually, tradition has it that he was killed during the reign of Manasseh. Um, but it's a bit stronger than tradition. You know, when, when Hebrews 11 speaks of those of whom the world was not worthy, it says of several at the end that are not named, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. The rabbinic tradition was that that's how Jeremiah and Isaiah met their end, that Jeremiah was stoned and that Isaiah was sawn in two. However he met his end, I don't think we would conclude that he was living his best life now. But beloved, he was indeed faithful. And I think it all goes back to what we read about right here. Because he saw God rightly, he was able to serve him faithfully, regardless of how things went. I don't know where you are this morning, whether in a time of plenty or a time of want, whether God is calling you to do something that feels overwhelming to you, maybe to love a, a prodigal child over years and decades of unresponsiveness, maybe trying to share again the gospel at Chinese New Year with family members who, who have shrugged you off again and again, maybe to do the often thankless work of being a caregiver to an aging relative, maybe it's teaching children, maybe you're teaching in children's ministry and seven and eight-year-olds, you know, when they're no longer cute. Maybe much harder things than these. What's going to sustain you? What's going to give you staying power? Maybe you're here this morning and you're ready for the first time to acknowledge that you really need saving. Maybe you put yourself right where Isaiah was and say, I, I don't have anything before the Lord. What was me? Maybe you're ready to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Receive the atonement that he offers. What will give you staying power? Beloved, knowing God will. Seeing the king will. There's a wonderful verse in John chapter 12 when, when John quotes the verses about blinded eyes and hardened hearts. And he says that they're being fulfilled in the unbelief of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. But then he says something interesting. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. Now, how could Isaiah, 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus Christ, have seen the glory of Jesus? Well, what John means is that the, the king on the throne, high and exalted, that Isaiah saw, was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. He was the king on the throne in the year Uzziah died. He would come as the holy seed out of the stump of Israel in the fullness of time. And at the end of all things, he would return. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. Do you see his glory this morning? Do you see the king high and exalted? Have you been redeemed by his grace? Then say with Isaiah, here am I, Lord. Send me.